Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. In this episode number 48 on pediatric fever, we have with us Gina Netto and Sarah Reed. Dr. Reed is an emergency pediatrician in the Division of Emergency Medicine at the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario in Ottawa. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Pediatrics and Emergency Medicine, and she's the director of CME at CHEO, as well as a clinical investigator. Dr. Netto is an emergency physician in the Division of Emergency Medicine at CHEO, as well as an assistant professor in the Department of Pediatrics and Emergency Medicine at the University of Ottawa. She's the Associate Medical Director and Chief of the Division of Emergency Medicine at CHEO, as well as a clinical investigator. To get them down off the ceiling, to not worry so much about the height of the fever is a really key element of what your interaction with them is going to be about. Precise measurement of temperature is not really necessary. For every degree of fever, you get a 10-beat increase in heart rate. You had a case of meningococcemia where the only thing that I saw was one petechiae on the foot. We know that parents know when their kid is febrile. I think it does play into my spidey sense. It's a beautiful Canadian summer day, and the kids are playing in the pool. And little Jane says she's not feeling well. Mum and Dad feel her forehead. They discover that she has a fever. So they start the car and drive to hospital. When they get to the hospital, they get triaged. They go down the hall. And when they see you, of course, they start to cry. Have you ever seen a child in your emergency department with a fever? He says sarcastically. At my ginormous community hospital, we see about 25,000 kids each year in our ED, and about half of them present with fever. Yes, there still exists fever phobia in our society, which brings hordes of worried parents into the ED with their febrile kids. For most of these kids, it's relatively straightforward. Most kids with fever have clinical evidence of an identifiable source of infection, a viral respiratory infection, acute otitis media, gastro, or a viral exanthem. However, about 20% have fever without an apparent source, despite your thorough history and physical exam. Now, a small but significant number of this 20% without an identifiable source will have an occult bacterial infection, UTI, bacteremia, pneumonia, or even the dreaded early bacterial meningitis. These are all defined as serious bacterial infections, or SBI, with occult UTI being the most common SBI, especially in the age set under two. In the old days, we used to do a full septic workup, including LP, for all infants under the age of three months, but thankfully, times have changed, and we aren't quite so aggressive anymore with our workups. Nonetheless, it's still controversial as to which kids need a full septic workup, which kids need a partial septic workup, which kids need a urine dip, and which kids need nothing except to reassure the parents. In this episode... With the help of Dr. Sarah Reed and Dr. Gina Netto, we will elucidate how to deal with fever phobia, when a rectal temp is necessary, how to pick out the kids with fever that we need to worry about, 
how to work up kids with fever depending on their age, risk factors, and clinical picture, who needs urinalysis, who needs chest x-ray, who needs blood cultures, and who needs an LP. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Dr. Gina Netto. Hello. Welcome. And Dr. Sarah Reed. Hi there. Thanks for having us. Now, the coolest part of this podcast is that Sarah and I went to medical school together, and we have many stories, none of which we'll be able to tell on the podcast of our many adventures as medical students at the University of Ottawa. So let's just jump into our first case. The first case is an 18-month-old girl who's brought into your ED with three days of fever between 38.5 and 40 degrees Celsius. She's previously healthy. Immunizations are up to date, including Hib and pneumococcal vaccine, and there's no history of recent travel. She has no cough, no difficulty breathing, no ear tugging, no vomiting, no apparent belly pain, no rash, and no diarrhea. She's been eating and drinking well at home. On exam, she appears tired but non-toxic. Vital signs are normal for her age, including an oral temp of 37.4. A thorough head-to-toe physical exam reveals no obvious source of infection. So let's just start with some general questions here. First, how should we define fever in the pediatric population? Well, I think historically we've talked about the root of, you know, sort of depends where you measure it. So officially, you know, 38.5 rectal, uh, 38 oral, and 37.5 degrees Celsius axillary. But we find it's probably easiest just to talk to the parents about a temperature over 38 as likely a fever, because we really need to consider how accurate the method is. You know, the true core temperature is either oral or rectal. Many, in fact, most parents are measuring using the ear thermometer or axillary temperatures, which we know are very inaccurate. You know, the axillary temperature can vary between, you know, sort of up and down 1.5 degrees Celsius. So all that to say, we really try and encourage parents to do a core temp, either orally in older kids, rectally in babies and toddlers, And, you know, you can easily just say over 38 is a fever. Okay. The bottom line is that in a kid who's older than a toddler, oral is the standard you'd suggest. Yes. And toddler or younger, a rectal temperature. Ideally, yes. Okay. And those kids certainly when they hit the door will require one of those two. Ideally, yes. So we've talked about how to measure temperature. There's so many parents who come in worried about fever Do we really need to treat the fever? Is fever dangerous? There's a history of sort of being worried about fever, that it's something dangerous that we need to treat as soon as possible. And certainly many parents come in with with that ethos. So I guess the first question is, is fever dangerous? And the second one is, do we need to treat it? We know that fever that is the natural body's response to fighting an infection uh, does not cause any harm. However, when you do have a high fever, the child clearly looks unwell. They may not drink. They have higher insensible losses, so they're at risk for dehydration. So it is important to treat the fever, not for the fever per se, but merely for the consequences of the fever. Yeah, and I would add that one of the main things that, as a practitioner, we want to make sure is that the vital signs are normal. And we know that with temperature increases, we'll see increases in respiratory rate and heart rate. And 
we need to document normal heart rates and respiratory rates before we discharge these patients. So actually having an afebrile assessment of both how they interact, what their behavior is like, and especially to repeat those vital signs to ensure that they've come down into a normal range is a key element of your assessment of the febrile child. Okay, so my understanding from the adult literature is that you need a temp of over 41.5 in order for brain proteins to start to denature, and that's theoretically at least when we should start worrying about the actual height of the fever. I understand that recent evidence suggests that with the advent of the pneumococcal vaccine, that there's actually little correlation between the height of the fever and the chance of bacteremia. I think you're kind of bringing up two points there. The first is this the idea of when hyperthermia is a problem. And as Gina said, there's in a normal physiologic febrile response, you're not going to get up over 42 degrees where we're worried about cerebral edema and, and um, badness. That's, you know, being locked in a car on a hot summer day kind of stuff. So that's not what we're talking about here today. The second point that you make is, yes, probably since the advent of the new immunizations, particularly against pneumococcus, the height of the fever matters much less than the appearance of the child. And that's a key point to get across to parents because, you know, you'll sometimes have a, I'd like to say, type A parent who will arrive with an Excel spreadsheet and graphs of what the temperature's been doing at home, that they've been doing, you know, Q1H vitals. And so to get them down off the ceiling to not worry so much about the height of the fever is a really key element of what your interaction with them is going to be about. Right. So could you give us an example of how you'd actually counsel a parent? Like, what do you actually say to them when they say, oh, I'm so worried, the fever's 40, is my child right. going to die? What do you actually say to them? Yeah, I was. Uh, Gina and I were talking about this, and I one, one couple of little things that I do is when they're in with fever and I go in and I hear this, I take my history, so I, and I know right away that there's a lot of anxiety, as particularly if they are doing Q1H vitals and waking their child in the night to check the temperature, you know, kind of where they're coming from. So before I even touch the child, I say, well, the good news is, is that you've immunized your child. And so we know that about 95% of fevers in immunized children are caused by viruses. So my job now is to examine your child to make sure there's nothing that needs antibiotics. So I prime them for that. And then they can observe me doing a full physical looking for all the sources of places where infections might hide, ears, throat, chest, skin, all that stuff. And then at the end, I can say, well, great news. There's nothing here that needs antibiotics. And I reiterate for them where I checked for those infections. And then we talk about how the fever isn't dangerous, but it definitely can make your child look quite unwell. I think you need really need to reflect that to the parent because that's why they're there. They thought their kid was lethargic and that's why they brought them in. So, you you know, the fever can make you feel really terrible and you can be, the kid will just lie around and not be them nor, their normal self. Super reassuring that just with a dose of, of um, acetaminophen or ibuprofen, they've perked up, they're interacting normally. And you're sort of modeling that for them during the assessment. So you're saying, you know, I know your child looked really sick at home, they'll be nodding. And then you say, but look at them now, just with a dose of the antipyretic, they've, uh, I don't use the word antipyretic with the parent, but you know, with the dose of the medicine, they're running around, they're blowing bubbles, they're giggling. That's super reassuring. So this is going to be what you're going to be doing at home. We talk about how they're going to treat the fever at home for comfort, not for the height of the fever, that if their child is just a little bit warm but playing normally, they don't need to be chasing down that fever every four to six hours with uh, with medication. They treat to keep their child feeling comfortable. They need to ensure the good hydration. So we talk about, you know, a child under two needs to pee 
four times in 24 hours, over two, three times in 24 hours. We talk about reasons to return to the emergency department, increased work of breathing, dehydration, and lethargy, i.e. not perking up when the fever is treated. If the ch- you know, Regardless of what the height of the fever is, if that kid does not perk up within sort of half an hour, 45 minutes of tre- fever treatment and no- are not interacting normally, we need to see them, whether it was 38 or 40. Um, so I try and get them away from the number and looking more towards how their child is looking and acting. And I, that, I spend a lot of my time sort of teaching them around that. And hopefully they've actually seen what their child was like at, ad- uh, at triage, seen how they are now post fever medication, and they get a sense of, okay, that's what she means. The other thing that I also tell parents is that, you know, fever medicine doesn't remove the fever completely. It doesn't prevent the fever from coming back, and it's not going to change the duration of the illness. So really, it's just a symptom relief. It's a comfort measure, and they're still going to have fever until their body is done fighting that infection. For the parents like this one, in this case, who had a measured fever at home but are afebrile at triage in the ED, do you approach them any differently compared to a patient who does have a fever at triage? I don't think so because I think for us, really, all I want to know is how many days of fever the child has had, really. I, would, I may ask about Tmax, um, but given the variability of where they measure, that's kind of less important. So if they if they you know are able to report to me the child has had fever for three days but they just don't happen to be febrile at triage it's pretty irre- irrelevant in okay. most children yeah okay so Dr Reed you had been you had been talking a little bit about vital signs before let's talk a little bit more about vital signs if a child has a fever what change can you expect in the heart rate and the respiratory rate related to that fever in other words when should we be worried about a heart rate or respirate after correcting for fever. So the correction is probably just a quick, easy way of remembering is for every degree of fever, so every degree of elevation of the temperature, you get a 10-beat increase in heart rate, likewise a 5-breath increase in respiratory rate. So that's an easy correction factor that you can do. Yeah, so for example, if their temperature is 40 and their heart rate is 144, then you would correct that down by 2 times 10, so 20 So that would give them a corrected heart rate for fever of 124. Great. And for our American listeners? (laughs) (laughs) Good question. I don't know. Okay. We'll we'll have to calculate that one out and and put it in afterwards. It'll probably be like... uh, You know, like the uh, osmolarity... You may have to multiply by pi pi or something. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So if the tachycardia does persist after you've corrected for fever, what kind of things should you be asking yourselves about? Well, I think you need to have a good differential of sinus tachycardia for kids. So yeah, crying, anxiety, pain, fever, but then you need to be thinking about things like early shock, okay, or compensated shock, either hypovolemia regarding like usually related to dehydration, or, you know, other badness like early sepsis. So if you've ruled out pain, fever, anxiety, you need to really make sure you're checking perfusion, you're asking about urine output, you're when you're at the bedside, you're looking at mentation and those signs of end organ perfusion, and having a very high index of suspicion for early signs of sepsis and other things that increase that heart rate if you can't find another reason. Lots of parents come into the eMERGE with their kids complaining that they're teething and they're irritable and they might have a fever. The first question is, 
does teething actually cause fever and should teething even enter into our differential diagnosis for kids who present with fever? Uh, So we know that teething probably doesn't give you a significant fever. It may raise your body temperature maybe by sort of like a, you know, a half a degree type thing, but it's never going to give you a fever that's enough to make you symptomatic. With regards to teething, I think that it certainly can make kids a bit cranky. Um, They should be consolable. They may feel a little warm, but they're not going to have a sustained fever. And so I really think that's a diagnosis of exclusion and I wouldn't be hanging my hat. Let's put it this way. I've never written teething down as a diagnosis on a chart. So that kid comes in, they've got a fever. We agree that we should probably try and bring down that fever. And then that can help us with the observation of the patient and see what they're like when their temp comes down to a normal temperature. What's the best way of reducing that temperature? Is acetaminophen better than ibuprofen? Is ibuprofen better than acetaminophen? Is alternating them? What does the evidence show? So the evidence shows that ibuprofen is superior to acetaminophen for fever and for pain as well. So we use ibuprofen as our first choice for the management of fever. And it's interesting that um, it seems that most parents will actually have been using acetaminophen. And so, in fact, one of the interventions that we often do is just give them a dose of ibuprofen, and in fact, the child will actually feel much better after a dose of ibuprofen. With regards to um, combining the two, There is a paper that does say that if you use both of them in combination, that there is greater effectiveness, so that it does help to bring the fever down better. Um, However, I think that's a huge mixed message problem in terms of why we're actually treating the fever. And and then there's also the, the idea of doing two medications. One is Q6, one is Q4. That is fraught with medication error potential and sort of potential safety concerns. And especially if we're trying to de- de-emphasize the actual fever number and focus back on the child, I find that most children, given appropriate doses of ibuprofen, don't require acetaminophen. There's a lot of good studies showing how bad parents are about measuring out and dosing um, these suspensions for their children. And so really, at least uh, trying to have some sort of handout that gives dosing information for those two medications and encouraging parents to be writing down what they're doing at home if they're giving both um, would be part of my instructions. There's a commentary that was published um, through the American Academy of Pediatrics a few years ago from their Pharmacy and Therapeutics Committee, just talking about this very issue that yes, indeed, using both is is probably more effective. However, you're sending a mixed message by telling the parent that the fever is a normal response of the body. And then on the other hand, you should be dosing them, you know, with medication, this is something we need to treat, it sort of reinforces this idea that it's dangerous. And then yeah, lots of evidence that parents uh, regularly overdose their children. Um, The other thing with ibuprofen is that there are case reports of acute tubular necrosis in the setting of dehydration. So you need to make sure that that child is reasonably hydrated before you're going to be recommending straight NSAIDs at home. And you have to remember that acetaminophen can also be harmful and that there are cases of liver dysfunction reported in children that are given uh, regular therapeutic doses of acetaminophen in the context of dehydration. So you do have to be aware that both of these medications, although generally are very safe, can have some consequences, particularly the child that is dehydrated. Yeah, and I mean, I think one thing I do tell parents is that if they are dosing regularly, that they shouldn't exceed three doses of ibuprofen in a 24-hour period. So dosing Q8 rather than Q6, so at the higher time interval rather than the lower one. Likewise, acetaminophen should be dosed Q6 
instead of Q4 if you're really giving it regularly. I mean, I have to admit, I've never tested my child's temperature ever. <laughs> so if they feel warm, but they seem fine, you don't have to do anything about it. Yeah. That brings up the question for those parents who come in saying that they're sure their child has a fever based on the old feeling of the forehead that they're warm. And let's say their triage temperature is normal. Do you take that as them having a fever at home or... What do you do with that? You know, because you could say, well, there was never a measured temperature at home and there's no measured temperature here. So they don't have a fever. Two answers to that. The first is that there are actually quite a few small studies showing that the parent's hand is pretty sensitive, like approaching 100%. So we know that parents know when their kid is febrile. So that's the first. The second point is that it actually really doesn't matter because you're still going to have the same approach. You're going to fully examine the kid, make sure there's no sign of anything. Um, It only becomes an issue when they're saying there's been eight days of fever, but it's never been measured. You know, is that a child then that you're actually thinking about whether you need to investigate because the length of fever is getting into the range where you're thinking about, could there be something more significant going on? And then it actually matters if, you know, it becomes a little bit more of a dilemma if you have an under three-month-old who that if were truly febrile, you would be actually in, um, doing some investigations. And and in that circumstance, you know, we actually quite often will have a neonate or a very small infant come in with a story of feeling warm. The next important question is, were ever an, any antipyretic given at home? If no, and no documented temperature at triage, that patient, what I, my normal approach, and I don't know what Gio, Gina would say about this, is that I keep them for a period of time. I serially check their rectal temperature. I watch them through their next feed. They've had a full examination. And if there's still no febra, a fever and we have a very well-appearing baby, I don't initiate investigations, but I teach parents how to do a rectal temperature, which is what they're going to need to do. And they're told that the minute that's over 38, they're back in my department. So let's do a summary here. Technically speaking, fever in children is defined as an oral temp of 38 degrees Celsius or more in kids older than toddlers and a rectal temp of 38 degrees or more in toddlers, infants, and neonates. Axillary and tympanic temps aren't so accurate at determining core temperature and can't really be relied upon in the infant. That being said, the parent's touch of the forehead is pretty accurate at predicting a fever, and the precise height of the fever is not as important as the duration of fever in predicting bacteremia and whether you should be worried about the child or not. This concept's important for parents to understand, especially when discharging the child from the ED. Remember that kids with infections and fever will almost never mount a fever of more than 41.5 degrees Celsius, which is when fever height becomes dangerous. These sorts of temps are generally only seen in patients with non-infectious causes of hyperthermia. For the child under the age of three months, it's important to get an accurate temp. And if the parents tell you that they think their infant has a fever based on feeling their forehead and the triage temp is normal after the parents have given the child antipyretic, then it's incumbent upon the physician to observe that infant in the ED and repeat the rectal temp a few times with clinical reassessments to help you decide if the patient is febrile and requires a workup or not. In assessing the child with a fever, it's important to interpret the vitals correctly. A good rule of thumb is, for every degree of elevation in temp, you should expect a 10-beat increase in heart rate 
and a five breath increase in respiratory rate. Again, for every degree of elevation in temp, you should expect a 10 beat increase in heart rate and a five breath increase in respiratory rate. Please take the time to calculate the corrected vitals and compare to normals for their age. If the child's tachycardic or tachypneic after correcting for fever and you've ruled out pain and anxiety as contributing to these abnormal vitals, then you need to assess for perfusion, mentation, urine output, cap refill, etc., and start thinking about and looking for the signs of sepsis. Now, what about antipyretics? Which antipyretics should we be using for kids? Ibuprofen has been shown to be superior to acetaminophen in kids and should be given to kids with fever in the ED in order to help you with your assessment of the irritable child. If the fever comes down with your ibuprofen dose and the child remains irritable, then again, consider sepsis. Although giving both acetaminophen and ibuprofen in an alternating pattern has been shown to decrease temperature more effectively than either one alone, there's a larger risk for medication error, and telling the parents to aggressively treat the elevated temperature is sending mixed messages in terms of the height of the fever not being as important as how the child is behaving. In terms of recommending dosing antipyretics for home, be sure that the patient is well hydrated before recommending regular therapeutic doses of antipyretic, as ibuprofen has been implicated in ATN in the setting of dehydration. And if you recommend dosing antipyretics regularly, the child should receive no more than three doses of ibuprofen per 24 hours and no more than four doses of acetaminophen in 24 hours. Some experts suggest only giving antipyretics when the patient spikes a fever rather than regularly to avoid potential complications with regular dosing. One additional important point is that there's no good evidence out there that giving antipyretics prevents febrile seizures. In the next chapter of this podcast, we'll get into managing the challenging fever without a source in kids. So we've talked about some great basic pearls about fever. I want to now get a little bit more into fever without a source. Dr. Reed, what is the difference between fever without a source and fever of unknown origin, and why does it matter? Well, fever without a source is a phrase we use to describe generally a young child, sort of under three years of age, who, after having a full history and physical done, there is no source of fever identified. And that happens in about 20% of cases of young children presenting with fever, okay? Fever of unknown origin is quite a different entity. So that's, depending on where you read, that's a fever being present for two to three weeks and following history, physical, and initial investigations, no source of the fever has been found. So a longer fever and investigations have been done already. And that's when you start to think of more unusual things like rheumatological or oncological, more unusual infections. Things are a little bit less ordinary. 
And I think it's also important to know, though, that even in children that have fever of unknown origin, most of those children, after being thoroughly investigated, still just had back-to-back viral infections. So for the approximately 5% of patients who present with fever without a source who do have a bacterial diagnosis, what are the diagnoses that we should be looking out for when we're taking our history and doing our physical exam? You know, the most common serious bacterial infection in this age group in fever without a source is UTI. So you're going to have to test for that. You're going to, you can ask about it, but in these nonverbal kids, uh, usually the testing is the thing that's going to be the most important. You need to be thinking about pneumonia. So you need to be asking about respiratory symptoms and, and looking for respiratory signs on your physical exam with the shirt off. You can think about bacteremia, but in a child who's had two doses of their infant immunizations, that's quite unusual. And so routine blood work is not required. And then other things to think about when you're examining is making sure the child, if they're ambulatory, that they're walking without a limp. So you're thinking about septic arthritis, osteomyelitis. You're giving them a really good look over the skin and the abdomen and making sure there's no sign of pain that could indicate an occult abscess, any soft tissue infection. So you've had a really good look. And then, you know, overall appearance and that really good attention to the vital signs, um, looking for signs of early sepsis, you know, how they're mentating, how their interaction is, is there any sign of meningeal irritation, what the fontanelle is like, so thinking about things like meningitis. Dr. Reed's now going to touch on some of the key questions to ask in the history in terms of assessing risk for serious bacterial infection, like the length of fever, immunization status, etc., So, you know, you want to know how many days the fever's been present, you know, much less worried at six hours than I am at six days. So the length of time, their immunization status, particularly making sure they've had at least two doses of the two, four, six and 18 month immunizations, and then underlying medical conditions. So sickle cell disease, a recent surgery, a previous UTI, any cardiac disease that would put them at risk of SBE, for example. So you had touched on the immunization history a bit there. Can you just go through for our listeners how you actually take an immunization history? I find it difficult to keep track of which immunizations are given at what age. What's the bottom line for immunizations in Canada when it comes to serious bacterial infections? What's an easy way to remember how to take a history for immunizations when it comes to thinking about serious bacterial infection? To be simple about it, the ones that are important with relate, related to what we're talking about today are the Haemophilus influenza B vaccine that's given at 2, 4, 6, and 18 months and the pneumococcal conjugate vaccine that's given at 2, 4, and 12 months. So essentially, if they've had two doses of that 2 and 4-month immunization, they're pretty well covered. So Dr. Reed, that was a great little summary of the most important vaccines, the Hib and the pneumococcal, for thinking about serious bacterial infections in little kids. What about the meningococcal vaccine? That one also seems confusing. What's the bottom line with the meningococcal vaccine in terms of thinking about serious bacterial infections? There is a meningococcal vaccine that's given at 12 months of age. Um, It covers meningococcal C, so it does not cover all of the strains that can cause uh, meningococcal disease. There is a newer meningococcal vaccine that's just been recently released, uh, but that's not in widespread use uh, yet. So at this point in time, the meningococcal vaccine doesn't really help me in terms of trying to stratify their risk of serious infection. 
Okay, so in terms of clinical decision-making when it comes to the child that you might be worried about a serious bacterial infection, the meningococcal vaccine doesn't really come into the picture. That's right. Okay. And Dr. Reed, you had touched on this a little bit before about how you might be a little bit more worried about a serious bacterial infection if the fever is really high. What does the literature say about the degree of elevation of the temperature in predicting the chance of serious bacterial infection in kids? So this is a bit tough because a lot of the literature around fever without a source is either predates the use of some of our newer vaccines, particularly the, the pneumococcal vaccine, or came around the time that vaccine was being released and, and actually being in widespread use. So I feel like it's a bit of a moving target. So in the pre-Prevnar era, there was definitely some data that suggested that if you had high fever, greater than 39, there was a higher chance of having pneumococcal bacteremia. Now that we're post-Prevnar and we see very little pneumococcal bacteremia, that data is not really that relevant in our current state. However, both the pneumonia guidelines and the UTI guidelines use height of fever as one of the indications for testing. So height of fever is still in there as being important because it guides whether you should test or not. From a practical perspective, when you're in the emergency room with a child in front of you, do you take the height of the fever into account when assessing risk? I think that for me, I definitely pay a little more attention to the child who's had a sustained fever over 40. I think it's definitely a piece of the puzzle. I agree. I think that I do worry a little bit more about the source of that fever, especially if I can't find anything on the examination. So while recent evidence suggests that with the advent of the pneumococcal vaccine, there's very little correlation between the risk of occult bacteremia and the height of fever, the UTI and pneumonia guidelines do include height of fever as one of the risk factors to take into account in working these patients up. Suffice to say that on the one hand, the height of fever is not as important as it used to be in the pre-pneumococcal vaccine era, but on the other hand, our experts do still take a sustained high fever into account when assessing for risk of serious bacterial infection in the child who presents with a fever of unknown source. So here I'd like to do a review of what we've talked about so far in terms of fever without a source. First, it's important to distinguish between fever without a source and fever of unknown origin. Fever without a source is the kitty less than three years old who presents with a fever and after a good history and physical exam, you still don't have a diagnosis. And this is about 20% of febrile kids who present to the ED. This is different than fever of unknown origin, which is a longer period of fever, two to three weeks of fever, with not only the history and physical exam, but also the initial laboratory tests and imaging workup done that don't reveal anything. So when it comes to fever without a source, about 5% of them are bacterial. UTI is the most common one, but we also have to be thinking about pneumonia, bacteremia, septic arthritis, skin and soft tissue infections, occult abscesses, and meningitis. So those are the things that you want to be particularly careful to look for on your history and physical when it's not immediately obvious what the kitty with the fever has. 
in terms of what would make you worry about this 5% bacterial causes of fever without a source, in the history, you want to ask about the duration of the fever. You want to know the immune status of the patient. Remember, at least two doses of the Hib and pneumococcal vaccine are the most important aspects of the immune status. If the kids had recent surgery, if they've had a previous UTI, if they're immunocompromised in any way, like sickle cell disease, for example or if they have cardiac disease, that would put them at risk for SBE, as another example. So take a good history. Now, it's a bit controversial as to whether the height of the fever should make you worry more about a bacterial cause, because while the guidelines for UTI and pneumonia both use height of fever as one of the factors to consider when deciding whether to test or not, in the post-pneumococcal vaccine era, studies have shown that the height of fever does not correlate with the chance of bacteremia. Next, we're going to be discussing pediatric UTI. We're now going to move on to the dreaded subject of urinary tract infections. We're going to try and clear up all the mud around UTIs in kids. But first, just a few stats. The prevalence of UTI in North American studies is about 5% in all febrile kids 3 to 24 months old and as high as 16% in girls with a temp of more than 39 degrees Celsius. A fascinating fact about UTIs in this age group is that pyelonephritis is actually more common than cystitis, which is the opposite of what we normally think about in adults. But really, the two most important questions we want to answer at the bedside in a febrile child when it comes to UTI are one, who to check the urine on, and two, how to check the urine. So let's start with, in asking which patients with fever without a source need a urinalysis, we first need to sort out which kids are at the highest risk for UTIs. Dr. Reed, can you review for us the risk factors for UTIs in kids and why it's important to search for the risk factors in this setting? Sure. It really does depend where you read, and so that's why there is a practice variation around this subject, and I feel your pain. I think that a really good article that's worth a read if you're seeing kids in your practice is the SHAKE article in JAMA from 2007, um, part of the Rational Clinical Examination Series that did a systematic review and made up a list of what the risk factors are. The American Academy of Pediatrics has a similar list, not exactly the same, but I usually use this list from JAMA. And so the things on that list are history of UTI, a temperature over 39, having fever without an apparent source, given that that's the most common serious bacterial infection is UTI in that population, having an ill appearance, having suprapubic tenderness, having a fever for more than 24 hours, and non-black race. I would add in there that for boys, just being uncircumcised would increase your index of suspicion that a UTI might be the source of their fever. You know, it's interesting that suprapubic tenderness is in there in terms of a risk factor of who you're going to test for UTI. To be honest, when kids come in with a fever... I checked the right lower quadrant to assess for appendicitis, but I've never really thought about suprapubic tenderness before, and I'm going to start incorporating that into my physical exam for these kids. So those are the risk factors for UTI in kids who present with a fever. How do you take those risk factors into an algorithm to decide who you're actually going to test? 
it depends on the age of the child. So under three months, fever without a source, you should check the pee. Okay. Between three and 24 months, you're going to look at boys who are uncircumcised and girls. And if they have one or more of those risk factors that I listed, you should check the pee. Between three and 24 months, if you have a boy who is circumcised, if they have two or more risk factors, you should check the pee. Again, just getting at the fact that it's much less likely in a kid who's circumcised. And then for kids who are over 24 months, they're considered verbal, i.e. they'd be able to tell you if it hurt when they peed. So for them, for girls and uncircumcised boys in that age group, uh, you should check if they have belly pain or urinary symptoms. And in a boy who is circumcised in that age group, he really would need to have several symptoms for you to think that it was a UTI because it would be quite unusual in a verbal child with no symptoms. Great. So for the people who like algorithms, that sounds like a great algorithm. The take home for people who don't want to remember exact algorithms, I guess, would be, although there's no sign or symptom by itself that is diagnostic for a UTI in kids, the presence of a fever with a temperature higher than 40, history of previous UTI, lack of circumcision, abdominal pain, back pain in the older kid, dysuria in the older kid, frequency, new onset incontinence, and suprapubic tenderness would increase your baseline likelihood of a UTI significantly. And the absence of all of these findings in combination would put you in a low-risk category. Yeah, I think that's essentially it for sure. We'll have this whole diagnostic algorithm in the written summary and the blog for you to review because it is a little bit difficult to remember unless you go over it a couple of times. I think one other thing that, that people probably are aware of is that there's a bit of a controversy in terms of how aggressive we are looking for UTIs in these kids and whether the evidence really supports this fear of um, scarring of the kidneys and long-term consequences if UTIs are not picked up very early on. And I, I would say that I, w- I agree with that to a point that I think that historically we have been very um, checking urines very early on and that my practice now is to the, the fever really does absolutely have to be present for at least 24 hours before I'm even thinking of checking the urine. I will say that we all can think of cases where urosepsis presented quickly and rapidly in little kids. And because we know that in these immunized kids, UTI is the most common serious bacterial infection, it probably is still better to err on the side of caution and check the urine in this population. I agree with that. I think that to aggressively pursue a UTI within the first few hours of fever is probably not quite reasonable. But definitely it is the one bacterial infection that you're not going to see unless you actually check for it. So definitely more than 24 hours of fever, I think the urine should be checked. Okay, so from a practical perspective, you guys use the time from onset of fever as one of the key decision points. Yeah. Now, we see billions of kids in the ED with upper respiratory tract viral infections, and sometimes we might decide prematurely that the kid just has a URI and can go home. If a child with a fever has a URI, can we safely assume that they don't need a workup for a UTI? In other words does URI rule out UTI? There's a study that was published back in the mid-2000s in pediatrics by Levine that that looked at quite a large cohort, like 1,100 little babies under 60 days, did full septic workups on all of them, and then had them grouped into 
babies who had bronchiolitis, either RSV positive or RSV negative, and then all of the other babies. And even in the kids who had bronchiolitis, there was up to a 6% rate of UTI concurrently with their bronchiolitis. So the recommendation in that small baby age group, so under 60 days with fever and bronchiolitis, if you are worried about a 6% rate of UTI, you should be doing catheterins on those babies and checking them for UTI. I will acknowledge that there's quite a bit of practice variation around that, but I'd say the majority of practitioners where I work, we do check the urine um, because of the results of that study. In older kids, it's a bit harder to say. I mean, I think if it's been just a few days and they're clearly viral, um, I don't check their urine routinely. I think you have to be cautious about the um, the daycare set who may have what looks like a, UT, a URTI the whole winter. So they always chronically have a runny nose and they may have a cough that's been present for weeks and weeks. And if they present with new fever, I think you need to be thinking about, you know, maybe it's actually not related to the snotty nose that they've had all winter. Maybe there's something else going on. So we've talked about which kids need a urine. Now let's talk about how to get that urine. Now I'm personally incredibly confused about when we can do a bag urine, when we can do a urine dip, who needs a cath or a suprapubic, who needs a microscopic urinalysis, who you, who needs a culture. Can you just try and give us the bottom line for how we should be getting a urine and what we should be sending it for? So if the child is toilet trained, you can get a urine the normal way. You can do a midstream urine or a close approximation to that. If the child is not toilet trained, then it's pretty clear that under two months of age, you have to obtain a culture. The only way to obtain a culture is either by catheterization or by suprapubic. So under two months of age, you should do the urine by catheterization. That's what we do in our practice. Because the test characteristics of the urinalysis, you are going to miss uh, UTI unless you actually do the culture. We know that young babies void very frequently, so they seldom have urine sitting in their bladder long enough to develop nitrates. And we also know that young babies do not develop a huge pyuria response to UTI, and so they may also not have white cells in their urine on their urinalysis. So those babies all need a culture. Over two months of age, the American Academy of Pediatric Practice Guideline for UTI suggests that a urinalysis can be used as a screen for UTI, and so that urinalysis can be obtained in the most reasonable way that you can. Usually that is by putting a bag on the child. So if you do the bag urine and the urine is clear with no signs of infection, then it's unlikely that there is a urinary tract infection there. So the test characteristics do improve with a microscopic examination. So I would suggest that a microscopic examination does get done as part of the urinalysis from the bag urine. And if your urinalysis is suggestive of infection, then you should proceed to do the catheterization in a child that's not toilet trained. Okay, and how many white cells does there need to be in that urinalysis for you to then go on? So in a urine that's collected by a bag specimen, I would consider probably greater than 10 to 20 white cells in that urine to be suggestive of a UTI. 
So based on your analysis that you get back, when would you be reassured that there's not a UTI? So in other words, below what number of white cells are you reassured that it's a negative test? So on a urinalysis obtained from a bag urine, I would consider white cell count less than 10 cells per high-powered field and you know negative leukocyte esterase, negative nitrate to be a negative urine. I did come across a study a few years back that showed a novel way to get urines from kids who aren't toilet trained to get a clean midstream urine rather than a bag, which would be nice because we all know that bag urines aren't ideal. Dr. Reed, could you just tell us a little bit about the study that was done and how to get urines from kids who can't pee for themselves? <laughs> yeah. So this is, a, I think this, I think it was done in Spain. It was on inpatient babies. Essentially the baby is suspended under uh, the arm in the axilla and there's some rubbing of the sacrum and then there's rapid tapping in the suprapubic area, sort of like a hundred per minute. And they had really good success rate, actually, of of getting the urine. Of course, the the, per, the the perineum or the you know the genitals are cleaned and prepped as per a cath um, before it happens. So it's interesting because actually one of our fellows where we work is actually doing a pilot study to see how feasible that is in eMERGE in terms of how many people you need to do it and how long it takes, and and then we need to again get our lab behind us to accept midstream urine in, in tiny infants and to make sure that it's actually feasible in babies who may be coming in that are a bit sicker, that are a bit younger. So there's a few things to tease out to see how that works in an emergency room setting and to make sure that it's sort of more generalizable to the patients that we're seeing. But I, I agree with you, if we could find a way to tickle a baby to get their pee and obviate the need for a cath, it would be amazing. So you know what we say in Pete's Emerge, what happens when you put a bag on? it induces immediate anuria. So I think that I'm going to go to my grave and it's going to say, still waiting for the urine. So when it comes to UTI, let's move on to disposition. Which kids with UTI need to be admitted to hospital and which kids can be sent home on oral antibiotics? So generally, for sure, the kids under two months get admitted to hospital. Okay. There are a couple of studies that suggest that kids over two months who are well appearing with UTI can be treated as outpatients. And they're discharge home on oral antibiotics with really good instructions about coming back if there's vomiting, not tolerating the antibiotics, persistent fever after sort of 48 hours, or, you know, if they deteriorate in the interim. And then older kids, if they're well, they go home on oral antibiotics. You know, sort of my criteria when I'm thinking about who needs to come in are the kids who are vomiting, not able to tolerate oral medication, dehydrated, you know, the ones who look sick. Okay. And then what would your antibiotic choice be for in hospital, like if you want to start IV antibiotics right in the eMERGE before they actually get admitted, what IV antibiotic are you going to give? And if you're going to be sending them home, what oral antibiotics are you going to send them home on? So I think you have to know what your local antibiotic resistance patterns are. I think that's actually important. Where we are, there is a fair bit of resistance to uh, sulfonamides and to amoxicillin. So we do not use either of those agents as primary treatment for UTI for outpatients. So we tend to use a first-generation cephalosporin, such as cephalexin, for the first-line outpatient antibiotic use. Or if they are uh, complicated UTI or you suspect maybe some early upper tract infection, then I would use cefixime. So that, but that will vary greatly depends on where you practice and what your local resistance patterns are. 
So for the older kids who you're sending home, cephalexin is adequate for a simple UTI, but you want to go to cefixime for which patients? For the young infants over two months that you're sending home, so sort of the two to six month old, I'll generally send them on cefixime or the kids that I'm concerned have a complicated UTI, pyelonephritis, but look well, or have a known history of uh, urinary tract abnormalities. With regards to admission, at our centre, most children with UTI would be started on IV ampicillin and gentamicin. Yeah, and I just to when we talked about the, the kids over two months, like those smaller babies that we used to admit to hospital but that are now being treated as outpatients, in those studies, cefixime was the antibiotic that was used. Now, this isn't quite in the realm of the emergency department, but it might be relevant in terms of when you're discharging the patient home for follow-up. It's a bit controversial what imaging these young kids with UTIs need in order to assess their kidneys and in order to assess their risk for renal vascular complications later in life, which is controversial in itself. The question is, do all kids with a first-time UTI need renal ultrasound and a VCUG? So there's been a change with this most recent iteration of the clinical practice guidelines from the American Academy of Pediatrics in 2011. And so now, yes, all first-time UTIs in young children, they need an ultrasound to assess for hydronephrosis or any other signs that would indicate perhaps there's some reflux going on. VCUG is only done if there are signs of that hydronephrosis. So there is no longer a recommendation to perform VCUGs on all of these kids. Less radiation, good. And I would also add to that that the use of prophylaxis for urinary tract infection has also become a bit controversial. There is a few fairly large long-term studies that show that prophylaxis may not be helpful in preventing uh, future UTIs, and that if they actually get a future UTI, they actually have a greater level of resistance. So the idea of doing a VCUG and then giving prophylaxis until the reflux was gone is also kind of fallen out of favor. So that's another reason why the VCUG is probably not necessary. So let's look at some of the take-home points for pediatric UTI. Some of the most important questions are, who needs a urine? That is, what are the risk factors for a UTI in kids? How do you get the urine? And how do you interpret the urine? So first, the risk factors for UTI in kitties. One, if your kitty is an uncircumcised boy or a girl. Two is if they have a fever of more than 40 degrees Celsius. Three is if they've had a history of a previous UTI. And then in the older kids, if they have suprapubic tenderness, abdominal or back pain, dysuria and frequency, all the usual things, or a new onset of incontinence. One of the other things to consider that our experts recommend is that if the fever's been more than 24 hours, that should heighten your suspicion for a UTI. In the kids that are less than 60 days of age and you've ruled in bronchiolitis, many of these kids will have a UTI, so it's recommended to check the urine, and for older kids in the winter season when they have one URI after another, that shouldn't play into your decision of whether or not to get a urine in a kid who presents with a fever. Now the next question is, how do we get the urine from these kitties? Any kids that's two months of age or less needs a cath urine with a urine CNS. 
because the urinalysis may be normal in these kitties, even though they have a UTI. In older than two months, up to the toilet trained age, a bag urine is satisfactory, but you need to do a microscopic urinalysis on it. And if you see more than 10 to 20 white blood cells per high powered field, then you'd go on to a culture and you treat for UTI. In the toilet trained kitties, a midstream urine is the way to go. How about disposition? All kids two months or less should be admitted with UTI, whereas those kids older than two months that are well-appearing can be discharged home on oral antibiotics with good discharge instructions. In terms of outpatient workup for these kids, the ones who you've diagnosed their first UTI in, they do require an ultrasound of their kidneys to look for hydronephrosis. Things have changed over the last 10-15 years in terms of which kids need VCUGs and were not quite as aggressive, and really now the only indication for a VCUG is in kids who have demonstrated hydro on their ultrasound, so it's not really in the purview of the emergency physician to order VCUGs. Next, we're going to talk about which kitties need a chest x-ray when they present with a fever without a source. Now this might sound like a simple question, which kids need a chest x-ray who have a fever without a source? But to me, it's actually a bit more complicated because we're doing a chest x-ray to find out whether a child has pneumonia, but we know the vast majority of pneumonias in kids are viral. But what we're really worried about is bacterial pneumonia. So I'll ask the question and we'll have a discussion, which kids with a fever without a source need a chest x-ray? couple things. So on history, the things that make me worried about a pneumonia would be a story that goes something like the child has had a URTI for some days and now presents with new fever. So that's sort of a classic pediatric pneumonia story, i.e. it's a bacterial super infection and that's the usual pathophysiology of, of pediatric pneumonia. So then other historical features that have come out in systematic reviews are that uh, with a fever that's been persistent over five days, a cough that's been persistent over 10 days, the high-grade temperature over 40 that's persistent, or if a white count got done, a white count that's over 20 with no other explanation. On physical examination, this idea of quiet tachypnea is important. So again, correcting that respirate once the fever is treated um, and making sure that it's normal. If it's not normal, that should be a bit of a red flag. They often just have mild increased work of breathing, and that's why it's really important to get that shirt off and actually look to see if they have a tracheal tug or indrawing, a bit of abdominal breathing. The other way of putting it is that the absence of respiratory signs and symptoms and a normal peripheral white count make pneumonia extremely unlikely. Yes. I want to add that in a child that presents primarily with wheezing, that a chest x-ray is generally unhelpful. And really should try to avoid doing chest x-rays in children that have a wheezing presentation. Yeah, that goes for your infants with bronchiolitis, as well as your older kids who have viral-associated wheeze or early asthma. Certainly, you're absolutely right that pediatric pneumonia, particularly in the babies and toddlers, is viral almost all the time. Unfortunately, 
we aren't able to, by the appearance on the x-ray, be able to say whether it's viral or bacterial if you have a low bar process going on. We have a lot of x-rays that are done through the winter that just show lower airway inflammatory changes. But if you have an actual consolidation, we treat that with antibiotics. So we've talked about the urine. We've talked about chest x-ray. Let's move on to blood work. Which kids with fever without a source need to be poked for blood work? And in particular, which kids need a blood CNS sent? So I would say in a well-appearing child who's had those two doses, at least two doses of the infant immunization, so the two and the four-month dose, with normal vital signs, you do not need to do any blood work. You have a higher chance of growing a contaminant rather than a pathogen in that population. So the incidence of bacteremia in those well-appearing immunized kids is probably around 0.25%. And in order for the testing to be worthwhile, the incidence would need to be at least 0.5%. So we're now below the threshold where routine testing is advised or useful. So really routine blood work is not part of the management of this well-appearing immunized population. In our um, post-Prevnar era, the white blood cell count being elevated, so the white blood cell count being greater than 15, is no longer predictive of bacteremia. Those test characteristics are really poor. So even using the higher white count to be able to predict bacteremia is not very reliable right now. So that usefulness of the white count is also very poor. So just to be clear, we're talking about children that are over two months of age with fever without a source. Children under two months of age do still need to have blood work done. We do still apply the low-risk criteria uh, between the age of one month to two months. And children under one month of age, the current recommendation is still to do a full septic workup in that age group, which includes CBC and a blood culture. Okay, so we'll get into that particular age group of under two months in a little bit more detail when we talk about the Rochester criteria and, and all that. But before we get away from the white blood cell count, you had mentioned that the white blood cell count isn't quite as useful as it used to be in this age group of over two months. What about other inflammatory markers in this sort of setting? Is there any value in sending a CRP or an ESR? Or I've heard about doing a procalcitonin in kids with a fever without a source. What's your take on that? Should we be poking kids for all kinds of inflammatory markers? Or do you think that might just muddy the waters? Well, I think that that is an evolving science and is probably not quite ready for prime time. So there's definitely quite a few studies coming out of Spain and Italy using these markers, particularly CRP and procalcitonin. And I think it appears that in the smaller infants under three months, it can be actually quite helpful and help in predicting who has an SBI. The problem is, is that those tests aren't always widely available. I mean, at our place, procalcitonin is not something that you can get. So it's not going to be helpful for me when I'm seeing the patient at the bedside. CRP takes hours. So again, that isn't as useful. In the older kids with fever without a source, the studies, really the jury is still out because there's such a wide range of results that come back. It's very difficult to highlight where the cut point is for when you are worried and when you aren't. So the jury is out for the older kids. In the younger kids, it does appear that having a procalcitonin over 0.5 or a CRP over 40 
seems to confer quite a significant risk of having a serious bacterial infection. So that looks like something that's going to actually be helpful for us as these tests become a little bit more uh, widely available and have a quicker turnaround so that you can make some diagnostic decisions at the bedside. So that's all about the over two-month age group. Let's now talk about the under two-month age group. And to set this up, I'd like to present a case. So here's our second case. A two-month-old born at 36 weeks is brought in by reliable parents. This patient is unvaccinated, is a circumcised boy who's had 12 hours of fever. There's no focus identified on physical exam. They appear non-toxic, and they have normal vital signs. So this is a kid that we see quite often, the well-appearing infant with a fever. Because age is such an important factor in helping our decision-making, it can get a bit confusing sometimes when kids are preterm. How do you calculate age when thinking about infection in kids? Do you use the chronological age, that is, the time since birth, or do you use the corrected age, which is the chronological age minus the number of weeks premature? The chronological age is probably the most important because the organisms that we're worried about, particularly in the first month of life, um, are organisms that are acquired through the birth canal. So these are things such as uh, gram-negatives, E. coli, groupie strep, listeria. However, if you have a premature infant who had a complex hospital course, that child, by definition, would not be low risk and so should be managed differently. Okay, so that's how to calculate the age. So once we've got the age, then we start looking at these different criteria, the Rochester criteria, Philadelphia criteria, Boston criteria, Pittsburgh criteria. It gets a bit confusing. It is recommended by some of these criteria that patients under the age of 28 days with fever without a source get a full septic workup, including LP. First, let's define what a full septic workup includes and what a partial septic workup includes that we all know what we're talking about. So infants in the first month of life have the highest rate of SBI of any time in childhood. So that is a high-risk group just by nature of their age. So those children, the recommendation is still that you would do a full septic workup. So a full septic workup is blood tests. So you would do a CBC and a blood culture. Uh, You would do a urine testing. Urine testing in this age group has to be done by catheterization or suprapubic. So that's a urinalysis plus a urine culture and a lumbar puncture. And the CSF that's obtained should be sent for cell count, protein glucose, culture, gram stain, and viral studies. So for an infant 28 days or under, they all need a full septic workup when they present with a fever without a source. That's clear, and that's been in the guidelines for the last 20 years. What about the patient who's 29 days to 90 days, so from one to three months? What do those patients need who present with a fever without a source? So these are infants for which we would use the low-risk criteria. So there are a variety of different low-risk criteria that are published that were based out of a variety of different American cities on which the original studies were done. But there is a summary low-risk criteria statement that is part of the AAP practice guideline for fever that goes back to 1993. And basically, 
An infant is considered to be low risk for serious bacterial illness from 29 to 90 days of age if they are well appearing with no obvious source of infection, they have no complex past history, they have normal lab criteria, which include a normal white cell count and normal urinalysis and a normal stool white count if they have diarrhea. Now, I've never done that, but that's what is in the criteria. And then in addition, there is some caveats about having reliable parents and availability for 24-hour follow-up. Yeah, the only thing, other thing I would add is that um, a chest x-ray should be done as well if there are respiratory symptoms. But in the absence of respiratory symptoms, a chest x-ray does not need to be done as part of the low-risk criteria. So if a child is deemed low risk by those criteria, they can be safely discharged home. That population has a chance of SBI of about 1.5%, of which most of those turn out to be UTIs. So that just reiterates the importance of doing the culture of the urine in this age group. Okay, so that's great. So we know when to do a full septic workup and when to do a partial septic workup in these little kitties. Now, you had mentioned sending for viral cultures when you get your tap. I've read that in about 70% of HSV encephalitis cases in neonates, the mom has no history of HSV, which is kind of scary. So do you recommend routinely giving IV acyclovir for kids suspected of meningitis? Yeah, I mean, I think you have to have a really high index index of suspicion for it because it's definitely out in the community. And as you say, the mum will often not have a history of having had a primary infection or knowing that she has cervical shedding. So things about the mum would be a young mum under 21 years of age, things about the the birth that might make you a little bit more worried is if um, it's a preterm birth under 38 weeks, if there was fetal scalp monitoring while they were in labor, if the baby has a low birth weight or there was a prolonged rupture of membranes. But more specifically about the baby, if there's any skin lesions or eye lesions, if there's signs of pneumonitis, if there's signs of seizures, bulging fontanelle, irritability, apnea, bradycardia. So we're, we're talking about a sick infant. And then if the CSF comes back showing a change in the cells, I would cover with acyclovir particularly if they're under two weeks, because that's when it will most commonly present, but even up to six weeks. The other thing that's interesting about HSV is that not only does it cause that sort of meningitis, encephalitis sort of picture, but it has a bit of a propensity for the liver and for the lungs. So if you had a baby who not only had sort of CNS changes, but also had a bit of a transaminitis on their blood work or signs of increased respiratory rate, that would also be a bit of a red flag for HSV, just uh, knowing that it causes a pneumonitis and hepatitis. I'm on the lookout I'm on the lookout. So just a little review here. Not all kids with fever without a source need a chest x-ray. Really, you should only be ordering a chest x-ray in a kid with fever without a source if the fever has been present for more than five days, or if they've had a cough for more than 10 days, if their temp is persistently more than 40 degrees Celsius, and if their white count is greater than 20 with no other explanation. Don't forget the concept of quiet tachypnea. That is, after correcting the respiratory rate for fever, if they're still tachypneic, you might want to order a chest x-ray. 
Which kids with fever without a source need blood work ordered? A well-appearing immunized child with a fever does not require blood work. A CRP and or a procalcitonin might be helpful in risk stratifying patients with fever without a source, and although this has been shown in studies, it hasn't become standard of practice. Don't forget to use chronological age to help guide your decision making in terms of the workup for these kids. Now, a full septic workup, including LP, is still recommended for kids who are 28 days and under. For kids who are 29 to 90 days, use low-risk criteria of the American Academy of Pediatrics practice guidelines. They'll be in the show notes for you to review. Before we wrap up, I just want to tell you about some exciting new things on the horizon for EM cases. I've been speaking with Michelle Lin from Academic Life and Emergency Medicine, and we're going to collaborate on their Academic Life and Emergency Medicine Journal Club and basically make a podcast out of it. So the way the Academic Life and Emergency Medicine Journal Club has been working is that they crowdsource key questions for the main authors of this important article, and then they ask them in a live interview on a Google Hangout, and then they provide an, ama- and then they provide an amazing written summary with comments from physicians all around the world. What we're planning to do is take it one step further and make a podcast out of the Google Hangout that was recorded provide a nice background to the article and a nice summary in a podcast that will be on EM cases with links back to the academic life and emergency medicine. And these new podcasts are going to be called Journal Jam. So I'm really excited about this new collaboration. Michelle Lin is an amazing educator and a great person to work with, and I'm really looking forward to working with her and her team. And this month's quote of the month comes from Rudolf Virchow. Only those who regard healing as the ultimate goal of their efforts can therefore be designated as physicians. Until next time, take it easy.